Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to kind of an impromptu fun discussion that myself, Luke Hallard, and Steve Simonton from Seven Investing are going to have. Uh, we're going to take a, a test drive or test flight, I suppose, in this case, of our live streaming capabilities. Uh, this is going directly to our at Seven Investing Twitter feed. We're also going to feature it on our Seven Investing podcast. We appreciate everyone who's joining as a live audience right now. Uh, but we wanted to look into kind of one of the topics that we really like to look into for Seven Investing. We're always issuing stock recommendations each and every month, and we kind of look at certain industries and how they're changing. And one that Luke, Steve, and I are very excited and passionate about is the space economy. This is something that has progressed quite a bit in the last 50 years. It's now seeing a lot of commercial interest. And of course, with those businesses and private companies taking an interest in outer space, that provides an opportunity for us as investors. So we're going to take that for a spin. Uh, if you do have questions, ask them at 7investing on our Twitter handle. We'll, we'll take any of the live questions that we get. We'll also be posting this, like we said, to the 7investing podcast. You can sign up for that at 7investing.com slash email to get these directly delivered to your inbox. Or if you are ready to see all of our stock recommendations, 7investing.com slash subscribe to start a membership today. Uh, gentlemen, I think that I've got my homework done. I checked all the boxes of things I need to say at the beginning. Are, are you are you pumped about the space economy? Any any initial thoughts before we jump in here? It, <laughs> go ahead, Luke. I, I would just say, you know, we're getting together on the podcast. We're chatting about space. We're having a bit of a space party. Simon, do you know how you organize a space party? Ooh, how, how do you, Luke? I don't know. You plan it. <laughs> but we won't be here all day and the puns will continue uh, luke luke or uh steve can you top that luke had a good pun to kick us off anything you guys uh, I, i've got nothing uh for dad jokes planned i should have i should have had something um but <laughs> i was i was thinking of the actual space economy and and uh how much more difficult it's gotten um from a capital standpoint that was <laughs> pivoting to the the sad serious part that's that's had some real repercussions uh in in recent months for companies that uh, are strapped for cash uh, absolutely well we'll chat about that in a minute you know it's kind of a reminder that that all three of us have invested real money in the space economy we all have positions in a lot of these companies uh, that are available for investors and in fact steve um you know what was it 20 years ago now steve was actually working for the department of defense as a defense contractor so he has a pretty unique perspective on on satellites as well. Right, we were uh, we were one of the uh, prime contractors on uh, some. It was uh, feature extraction from satellite and aerial imagery and and uh, some contracts that we had in place with. Um, I mean, whatever agency it is, you name it, and in uh, in lidar stuff, early stage lidar files that. Uh, I, I envy the the processing power people have at their disposal today because the things I could do, I spent so much time uh, setting up like parallel computing algorithms for like to share uh, resources across the network on just, you know, in retrospect, super weak machines, but they were beastie back then. So uh, today I can't even imagine uh, what people are doing with it. It's come a long way in those two decades, Steve. But if we go even farther back in time, you know, let's look back into July of, of 1969, right? This is where the first man stepped foot on the moon. Uh, even though none of us was watching that happen live, it was a pretty big deal. It kind of kicked off a space race between the U.S. and Russia, not just building the spacecraft. They could get up there, but all the components that were involved with it, uh, the rockets that were actually sending spacecraft out in the, the outer space. And it kind of led to a whole lot of research that was government funded. Um, Five decades later, here we are, and you know, in 1998, we had the International Space Station. 
uh, which was kind of a collaborative effort between U.S., Russia, and other countries too. But that needed payloads shipped up there. It kind of rockets kept getting better and bringing more and more things to uh, this space station that was orbiting around the Earth. And that kind of has opened up here in recent years to not just being government funded, not just being government developed, but a lot of private enterprises are working on the launch side of this. In addition to that, NASA is doing further and further missions. Uh, we've seen the Artemis missions now being discussed where they want to return back to the moon. We actually saw an unmanned uh, craft go up to the moon. We actually put some satellites in orbit around the moon this past year. There's some exciting stuff in space exploration that's going on right now. And of course, we know that a lot of the R&D and research that goes into these government-funded missions uh, further finds its way into commercial opportunities, right? Velcro, water filtration, a lot of the stuff that we take for granted was developed out of necessity that was started from government-funded projects. And then the last thing that I wanted to do to frame this is the importance of defense in the space industry, too. This has been something that very, since the earliest days of, of the space economy, the most deep-pocketed customer has been government-funded defense funds, right? The U.S. Defense Department and now Space Force is wanting to make sure that they have sovereign interests in protecting the country with satellites that are constantly doing surveillance and other things in communications and, and other things that support weaponry and military activities that are in outer space. So, so all of this is kind of, you know, a 50-year tenured history of where we've, we've been before, but perhaps we want to talk about some of the opportunities that are um, available for commercial enterprises and for investors today. Luke, I might kick that off by talking about launch providers because now it's not just NASA's spacecraft and NASA's rockets that are shipping things up into orbit. We've seen kind of the privatization of a lot of, uh, of the launch industry. Would you like to kick us off and talk a little bit about that, about that opportunity for investors? Well, I suppose I'm, I'm wearing the SpaceX t-shirt and they're really the, uh, the big name in this space. I would love to be a SpaceX investor. Sadly, it's still a private company, very hard to get access to that. I think in a very recent funding round, uh, they're raising money at $137 billion valuation. So probably one of the most expensive private companies out there now that Stripe have taken a bit of a haircut. Um, I think this, this space is really interesting. It's, um, particularly right now for investors. And if you just take a look at base, just the, the economics, the cost of putting a payload into low Earth orbit, it's, it's the cost of that has fallen through the floor. And that's just going to open up the, um, the economics of um, putting stuff into space for lots of different reasons that we'll talk about today. Um, just to share a couple of numbers on that, it used to be 18,000 US dollars to put one kilogram into space uh, back in sort of pre 2000s. Today, that's under $2,000 per kilo. I could almost afford to put myself in space now. Um, that's expected to get down as low as perhaps $100, $150 per kilogram. So just makes it much more accessible for even quite small companies to start putting comms, monitoring satellites, all sorts of really interesting stuff, stuff not just the really big you know, military industrial complex having access to this uh, new frontier. Very exciting. Can, can you tell us a little bit about SpaceX's approach? We know that Elon's kind of the great disruptor of industries. It seems like, you know, he's, can you talk about the types of rockets he's, he's building and then also how, how people are getting those affordable price points? Yeah, I suppose the, the, the big news is Falcon 9. Um, I think they've, I 
think they flew their 214th, or maybe the 216th Falcon 9 mission just uh, last week. Um, and actually, March was the first time SpaceX have launched eight Falcon 9 launches in a single month. So, you know, this stuff is happening multiple times a week now. It's pretty incredible. And typically, they're using those launches. They've got the economics really worked out well because not only are they servicing um, NASA and, and you know, militaries, not just in the US, but in other countries as well, but they've got their own payload, Starlink, which we can talk about, and the 214th mission uh, at the end of March, but another 56 Starlink satellites into space. So they've got the economics nailed because if they can't find a customer, or they've got their own customer in terms of um, building space internet effectively with Starlink. I think it's a really incredible model that Elon's put together. It's, it's pretty neat. Like, like you said, they've got their own internal interests. They want to put satellites for, for communications for, uh, for Starlink. They've already got, I, you know, I, I don't know how many customers it is, but it's, it's a global operation. We know that a nearby actually uses Starlink down in Australia, but it seems like they have internal interests, but then they're kind of opening it up for ride share, right? Where you can put a payload onto a rocket, a Falcon rocket that's already going to a certain orbital plane. It's going where, where Elon wants it to go, where Starlink needs it to go. But if you also want to be in that same area, um, you want to, obviously, when you're out in space, spend as little as you can on fuel because fuel is expensive and, and heavy to get out there. But if you're kind of in the same neighborhood and you want to get off where the bus is stopping, it seems like Starlink is the most economic way to do it. Um, Steve, we've also looked at kind of another opportunity in, in launch, which is dedicated launch, where say that um, you don't align with, with SpaceX's schedule. You know, the economics is not as important as getting the lowest dollar per kilogram cost. Like, like Luke mentioned, it was maybe $18,000 per rideshare uh, kilogram several years ago, and then down to below $2,000 per kilogram of payload today. By the numbers that I've looked at Rocket Lab, uh, you can now do a dedicated launch of up to 300 kilograms for about $7.7 .7 million, average launch for a 300 uh, kilogram payload, which by my math is a little bit more than $25,000 per kilogram. Now, why would you pay so much more when you could pay a fraction of that uh, today with Elon, well, the answer is because you can send it exactly where you want to, exactly when you want to. And so if you're a business that's got an operation that's ready to go and time is money for you and you're, you've got customers lined up that are ready to start paying you for this, uh, you might not want to wait 12 months until the right time is for you to, to serve the yep. region that you want to serve. And so, Steve, we're, we're kind of seeing the development of these smaller satellite launch providers, um, Rocket Lab being one of them right now. Yes, and um, I, I think it's important to note that um, <laughs> if you are looking to put a payload into space, your options are fewer uh, now uh, than they were a year ago. And um, I, I mean, that's <clears throat> a good thing for Rocket Lab, obviously, and, and for SpaceX. Um, but you're, you look at companies like Astra, which had multiple failed launches, and you know, now if you look at the news for, for Astra, their, their, their most recent news is trying to avoid NASDAQ delisting with a potential reverse split, right? And, and, uh, and Virgin Orbit, ugh, just how, how frustrating that whole situation uh, was to kind of watch unfold. Um, I recommended seven investing members sell Virgin Orbit after their failed launch because I realized they couldn't afford any hiccups after their SPAC listing was undersubscribed and they raised less money than, uh, than expected. And, uh, you know, a lot of these companies are hungry for cash, 
and uh, and and they're looking at SpaceX. So their enviable ability to raise capital in this environment is just incredible. Uh, and, and I think that's something that is going to be crucial now that um, you know you have less money out there to to get, and lending standards have tightened. Um, and they're more strict, and companies like Virgin Orbit just simply couldn't raise the cash they needed. So we saw a Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing from them. So um, just in in recent days, so what 11. 12, 11 cents per share right in there is where they're trading right now is we, they figure out how to liquidate things. Um, so the, the landscape for companies that are, are well-funded uh, and have the ability to raise cash and have been able to consistently complete their launches successfully, like SpaceX, what did you say, 200 plus uh, missions that they've completed and, and Rocket Lab has this sterling record as well with, what is it, dozens of launches, right? And um but you know, Virgin Orbit was on their fifth launch, and that failed. And Astra's failed, uh, you know, failed a couple in a row. And and uh, I think consistency is key. You obviously don't want to lose your payloads, um, but I, I think uh, consolidation is going to be the name of the game over the next couple of years, uh, as these companies realize that it's a lot harder. You know, space is hard, as they say, because of course it is. And some people are annoyed with hearing that, but. Uh, the companies that do it well and do it consistently, I think, are, are set up well to, you know, not only survive, but but thrive over the long term. So they, it, that should be a fun one to watch um, after we see this consolidation. Can we just recognize how incredible it is that Rocket Lab uh, are, are actually in contention as really the only other viable private space launch c capability other than SpaceX? SpaceX have been at this for a long time. They've had a ton of failed launches, failed landings. Now they've got this nailed and they're being successful almost every time. Somehow yeah. Rocket Lab have managed to sort of bootstrap themselves into a very similar position and have, you know, it's going to be a while before they're, you know, really generating earnings for shareholders. But they're on an incredible trajectory. And SpaceX are able to uh, deliver payload so cheaply because they're kind of recovering almost every component now. They're landing the boosters. Well, Rocket Lab are on that same journey too. You know, they're they're recovering key elements of the stuff they put into space, kind of catching things with helicopters. You know, it won't be long before they're thinking about how do they land their boosters as well, so they can reuse them in the same manner. It, it is really interesting, Luke. It, it, you've got such a uh, such a gap between SpaceX, which is the five thousand pound gorilla in this industry, and then you've got the much much smaller players. Right, the, the, out of the four largest. At, Globally, the, the, the four entities that have launched the most satellites into outer space uh, have been U.S. government, Chinese government, SpaceX, and Rocket Lab. And we just said SpaceX, you know, okay, so removing the Chinese government and the American government out of this for a pick for a moment. Uh, you looked at SpaceX. SpaceX is, what did we say it was, like a $130 billion private valuation or so right now? And, and then you've got Rocket Lab number four on the list, which is right in terms of private companies right behind SpaceX at a less than $2 billion valuation. It just shows you, you know, how, how big of a, of a gap there is between the, the funding. And like Steve said, this is a really, really tough thing to do. This is not something that the three of us can do in our garage and start launching you know, satellites out in outer space. Launch is very, very difficult. There is some interesting um, context in this, though, that 2021, taking 2022 out of the picture because it was a challenging year for the economy, but 2021 um, actually had the most satellites that were attempted to launch into space, 144 during the year, and the most successful launches of satellites in outer space, 133. Those are the most of all time, all time records in 2021. 
The previous records were set, were set in 1967 and 1976. So we've seen kind of a lull, but this is kind of an inflection point again, where there's a renewed interest in putting satellites in this outer space. And this is a, an opportunity, of course, for the launch providers, like we just mentioned right there. Um, one of the biggest opportunities is in satellite internet. And so let's segue into this as a commercial opportunity of why are people sending, why are companies sending things in outer space? What are they doing? If you're not doing something for defense, um, we mentioned Starlink is providing satellite internet. And I think that telecommunications is actually going to be the largest contributor to the satellite economy, the space economy, if you will. In fact, there's a new, there's a new spectrum called V-band. It's about 50 gigahertz. If you want to actually uh, transmit anything in this frequency, you have to apply for it. And the FCC said a couple of years ago, hey, if, if you actually are interested in this spectrum, for your own commercial purposes, you need to send us an application and tell us why. There's a huge regulatory process for anything that goes into outer space. You know, if you need to decommission the satellite, you know, make sure it's not going to interfere with other satellites, and so on and so on. And amazingly, they got over 38,000 new applications for satellites from, from mostly um, companies that wanted to use them for telecommunications. 22,000 of those were from Starlink. Starlink continues to iterate and improve the designs of the satellites that it wants to send uh, up with, it, with its Falcon rockets. Uh, in fact, they're actually testing out an even larger rocket this month, Loop, which will be Starship, uh, which will be taking off right here in my home state of Texas. But Astro Labs, you know, Steve, you mentioned them before, they've got an application for 13,000 satellites. OneWeb, who is wanting to uh, provide internet for remote areas of the world, They've got an application for 6,000 new satellites, and then Amazon's Project Kuiper uh, for 3,000 satellites to support its web services uh, division. There's a lot of different launch providers that have an opportunity to serve these. And when you look at um, Rocket Lab as a whole, has only placed over only about 150 total satellites uh, up to this point, and then you've got 40,000 almost applications with the FCC. That's an order of magnitude change that we could see if um, if, it's, if it's allowed. If, you know, this is not just something that's given, but it's something that's going to have to be figured out. Guys, I think there's a huge commercial opportunity for the right companies to partake in this in this um, in this division of, of the space economy that we're kind of calling satellite internet. Yeah. And, uh, Any thoughts on that? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah. And it's spreading, I think, faster than we think already on, on a commercial scale. Uh, it, it's it was so interesting uh, because you know, if you go to um, SpaceX's website and, and you ask to sign up for Starlink and you put in an address in my town, it'll say it's unavailable. And uh, but but a few kind of persistent people in my town, including some of our good friends just a couple of weeks ago, decided to put in an order anyway. And they sent them the hardware and it set it up and it works beautifully, actually. <laughs> so they said it's it's no different than the, the cable Internet that they had when they were our neighbors, you know, a, a few months ago. And and uh, so really, really interesting where uh, I, I think maybe they're they're purposely kind of holding things back because of the, the perceived you know, not perceived demand, the very real demand uh, that they have for Starlink uh, at this stage. So, um, yeah, it, it's I. You also wonder, you know, what kind of repercussions that'll have with uh, standard telecoms. You know, there'll always be. Maybe I should be careful with my wording there, because in saying always, but uh, generally the idea is that satellite internet will always be inferior to comparable hardwired like fiber to the home. 
you know, which is also coming to my town in Missoula, Montana up here. Um, fiber, you know, is, is lightning quick, but you'd think there'd be, you know, as far as latency goes, as far as you know, throughput for bandwidth goes, um, you know, how can, can, uh, can space-based internet systems and communications hope to keep pace with hardwired? Uh, and I think the answer is, is, uh, is that it doesn't really need to, right? You have two thirds of the world that is still not connected to the internet, which is bonkers to me in the United States. Uh, because you, you think that everybody just has internet. It's almost like this an infallible human right. And, uh, but you know, two thirds of the world doesn't have, and, uh, I, I think these companies, these space companies are going to make a killing, uh, actually providing internet to the majority of the world that, that doesn't have it yet. And it's just a matter of, of being able to scale it. And for the companies that can consistently launch and expand their satellite networks like SpaceX, um, just keeping at it. Right. And, uh, and hoping people don't mind that our sky is dotted with many more fast moving objects at night. So it's going to, it's going to annoy sort of hobbyist astronomers, but, uh, you know, the, the price <laughs> yes. of progress, right. I think, um, SpaceX have got nearly 4,000 satellites up there now. And, um, and that, that's just as of you know, the last month or so. And I think, I think they were due to announce at the end of March, I didn't see the announcement, that they've got now complete global maritime coverage. So as Steve said, you know, people like our colleague Annabelle are buying Starlink uh, boxes like antenna for their roof of the house. People are sticking these on boats, they're putting on aircraft, on their recreational vehicle. You know, suddenly you've got pretty, you know, pretty solid internet connection, high bandwidth, low latency for kind of anywhere on the planet. Um, and actually really exciting. I, I don't know if they've launched it yet, but there's been a pre-announcement that if you've got a T-Mobile mobile phone, um, you don't need to change your hardware. You'll be able to send and receive SMS like messages through the Starlink network from anywhere on the planet. So that's, uh, that's incredibly disruptive and just incredibly helpful if you're, you know, out hiking or if you're in a remote area, suddenly you perhaps don't need expensive, uh, satellite phone technology. Phone yeah, yeah, and uh, I used to be a T-Mobile customer and, and uh, actually switched back to Verizon up here because the coverage was abhorrent and I, I couldn't handle it. And, you know, you're traveling even within town and there's there's big blobs of areas where you just can't get anything. And, uh, you know, I wonder if, if that'll help with you know, the, the standard telecoms who realize like, geez, we should uh, supplement our existing tower networks. And, and Simon, you know a thing or two about that. I know you follow American Tower yep. uh, with what is it, 10,000 plus you know, towers more uh, in the country. Uh, you see those cell towers everywhere, but uh, uh, just ubiquitous coverage. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, uh, like you said, the price of progress, I, I don't mind the the satellites we were camping last summer. Kids are like, what's that? And I was like, that's a line of SpaceX satellites, you know, and you see them passing over a couple times a night and um, really neat. But so, so that's the key here, Steve, is that, you know, now, now I think the word that we should we keep in mind as investors is constellations, right? When right. we're talking about low earth orbit and maybe let's step back and kind of talk about how you, how you just mentioned, you know, the American towers of the world or a lot of the fiber internet, a lot of these things are kind of stationary. They were putting a whole bunch of fiber cable in the ground, uh, Google and others figured out that is really hard to make economical. It works for certain densely populated areas, but you're not going to be doing that in most of the world that's not getting internet today. 
And so the first thought was to put things out in geosynchronous orbit, which is way out there, but it's serving the same location. It's moving at the same trajectory as the Earth. So that if you wanted satellite TV, I was always going to be in my home. I was always going to get it from a certain satellite that was serving this region and so on. But now we're, we're going into low Earth orbit, which is kind of like a whole bunch of these satellites moving like a swarm of bees. If you can think around that, going out in, in orbit across the entire world, but if one of them becomes damaged, if one of the nodes becomes unoperational, it just bounces to another node. And so you don't disrupt the service. It's not a, you know, satellites are expensive to place out there, but it's not the entire business goes out. You, know, you don't just entirely go out of business, the satellite stops working. And so that's why you see, what is it, 30,000 uh, applications, I'm sorry, 22,000 new applications, 30,000 30, total satellites that Starlink wants to place. It's just kind of adding more and more and you're going to have to be placing a whole lot of satellites at the same time. So the really interesting thing with launch, uh, to kind of maybe just offer a couple of thoughts on this as, as we close this segment out, is, is that it's not just about placing one satellite for one customer at one time into the orbit where you want to. It's going to be placing 50 to 70 satellites at a time, up to hopefully several thousands. And all of the large players from Amazon to OneWeb to Starlink to anyone else that wants to place these constellations out there is trying to figure out who's the right launch provider that can do this, uh, knowing that payloads are expensive, and there's a high degree of failure for at least the providers that are available out there right now. Uh, Project Kuiper with Amazon is going to be very interesting. The United Launch Alliance has been under contract for 92 missions over five years, but has yet to place a successful test mission even into outer space. Um, but they've committed $10 billion to that project. Uh, we can talk about launch for a couple more hours, but I do want to move on a little bit, Luke, because you've got a whole bunch of other commercial opportunities that we mentioned. Um, one of them was, was space tourism. Steve, I know you know a thing or two about this one too, right? Virgin Galactic has kind of gone out there guns blazing saying, hey, this is a really exciting opportunity. Right. Walk us through what this could look like. Either one of you, Steve or Luke, this is an interesting one. Um, I, I, I can kick it off. Um, the, the way, you know, we've kind of seen a little bit of this work um, early on is that it's catering to high net worth individuals. We'll, we'll put it kindly, right? Uh, these are these are folks who don't mind spending a lot of money um, for things that they can't that other people simply can't experience. And and uh, you know, Virgin Galactic has uh, I think last I checked it was eight hundred and change reservations um, for their you know what what's really you know the the entire flight process lasts like an hour and ten minutes, hour and fifteen minutes, and they get just three, four, five minutes actually in, you know, no gravity. Uh, basically, uh, it's just past uh, the line they would consider, you know, some people consider space and, uh, you know, flips gives them a good view of Earth. Um, Blue Origin, you know, same thing. Uh, Jeff Bezos project is is kind of the same, same deal. Uh, and you've seen several launches, uh, including the one with him, uh, where they went up and, and, uh, you know, you get a quick view of Earth and, and come back down, and and uh, there there's lots of options, and, and you know, you even have some some very 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 rich people uh, who end up going, you know, they'll go up uh, to the space station via SpaceX or something, and and uh, you have people paying what is it, twenty four million dollars or something for that, um, but you know, over time, the idea is that uh, you know you're going to start with projects like this. Uh, novelty trips like this that people pay $400,000 a pop or more uh, in Blue Origin's case, but Virgin Galactic is $450,000 a ticket now. And, um, you know, I, I think there are people who will pay it 
in these early stages. It's kind of like your early adopters. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, people say, well, that's not, you know, sustainable. How can you possibly scale that? You can't make money that way. Well, yes, you can. Um, it's kind of like the people who bought plasma TVs back in 2006 for $14,000 for a 43 inch, you know, flat screen, because, you know, that it was there and they could spend it. And, uh, you know, over time, you're able to scale this. You enjoy those economies of scale. You build more spaceships. Uh, you reduce the maintenance cost and frequency you know, of, of maintenance requirements between flights. Uh, and you're able to just do this consistently, right, and, uh, and scale it up. And, uh, and then, eventually, uh, you transition to something that Luke mentioned when I was uh, joking this morning uh, on, on my kids' trip to school, you know, a, a quick low Earth orbit hop might make it uh, just a couple minutes instead of 40. They they close the one lane bridge that we use to get to school for a week for repairs, which is hey Montana, right? Um, but this, uh, so I have a 40 minute trip to get the boys to school and back uh, instead of a. a 10, 12 minute trip. And, and yes, but, uh, you could do low earth orbit hops, uh, on certain planes, uh, and, and make, you know, intercontinental travel just snappy. Right. And that's, that's kind of the idea over the long term. You can do that and you can do trips where you pop people up to space briefly and take a look. Uh, and over time, you know, 15, 20, 30 years down the line, uh, you have space stations that are, uh, re you know, commercial space stations that, are in the process of being planning. So uh, you have other companies like um, Redwire, you know, for example, that uh, that have, um, you know, they build hardware and solutions for for all these space stations, uh, supplies, and everything. So um, lots of different opportunities, I think, will pop up. Uh, but this feels so early stage that people people dismiss it as a novelty that's going to go away, and I don't think that's going to happen, especially uh, with uh, crazy companies like SpaceX, kind of pushing um, the the disruptive uh, innovation side of things forward. Uh, I think it will be very real uh, a few decades from now, um, almost like air travel didn't used to be a thing, right? And it wasn't that long ago, you know? You, you think the Wright brothers actually lived long enough to see the first commercial flight, uh, which is wild to me uh, when you think back on this, this brief, um, the, the, the brief timeline that things have happened. And I, I think it's gonna be more real than people realize. I haven't, I haven't refreshed my insight on this, but I think we've got a pretty famous chap heading into space fairly soon. I think Tom Cruise is off to the ISS in the next couple of years to film a documentary or film a movie. I mean, of course he is because he's Tom Cruise. He's probably going <laughs> to parachute back to Earth afterwards, God knows. But, uh, you know, there's, that's really going to drive a lot of attention to this, to this, this whole area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of speculation, too, with the Virgin Galactics of the world and, and uh uh, of who's going to be on their first commercial flights, right? And, and they say they're on track to begin commercial service uh, with flights. I think what they're shooting for is about once a month. Um, you know, sometime in the second quarter, uh, they hope to resume um, or commence their, their true commercial service. And it will be somewhat infrequent at first. But uh, there's a lot of speculation uh, on, on the famous people who have tickets, uh, who will be raising awareness, uh, you know, in the first place. I know, uh, there was Ashton Kutcher, for example, had a, a Virgin Galactic ticket that, uh, after he got married and had a kid, he said, you know what, maybe I should do this another time. And, uh, and he gave that one back, but there's a lot of other famous people I know, uh, you know, have these tickets and, and will raise awareness like Tom Cruise. I'd be curious, um, cause I haven't heard of that, uh, who or which platform he's going to use to get there. Um, because I think there's a couple options now, 
uh, for people to get there. How about a Luke? Are you going to use uh, uh, space travel to cut down the flight times between continents for vacations? Is this appealing to you? I think it's pretty expensive right now, but I think Ark <laughs> Invest put like it's called hypersonic travel. Basically, you know, getting to near Earth orbit and then coming down. So you could do kind of you know New York to to London in like minutes, if like less than an hour. I think Ark put this at a something like a two hundred and seventy billion dollar industry potentially. Um, if you just look at how much money people spend on kind of private flights, it's just kind of a step on from that. Well, yeah, and, and and you look now, it's like people say, oh, how absurd that people pay for, you know, $450,000 a pop just to go on a brief, you know, space flight with Virgin Galactic. Um, but they're already spending, you know, $7,500,000 for certain plane tickets on private, private air travel, um, which isn't, you know, a, a space hop, a hypersonic flight. Um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not a big jump even now in these early stages without scale. Uh, from what people are paying for private flights anyway. So, and it's not going to be everywhere, right? No. Every, every it's not going to suddenly be a spacecraft, but you can certainly see for something like London to Sydney and a two-hour trip instead of yeah. how many hours to I mean, there will be certain flights that, that might be appealing for the right commercial travelers. Yeah, I'm not going to fly from a Zula, Zula to Seattle, you know, via <laughs> hypersonic flight. That only takes... It'll take 12 <laughs> seconds, though, Steve. It'll be really, really quick. <laughs> yes. Spend more time boarding than I do on the flight, but... I, I do want to chat a little bit uh, because because you said hypersonic, Luke. I want to talk a little bit about the military applications right now. Uh, this is a, a little bit different than the things we've talked about before, but there is a lot of um, interest in private companies that are operating satellites for military purposes, right? And one of the biggest being surveillance. Of course, there's heightened geopolitical risks right now. There's an Eastern European conflict, you know, with Russia and Ukraine going on. And this is really kind of... Uh, prompted a lot more interest in tracking hypersonic missiles. And this is kind of the thing that, that everyone wants to know, you know, is this going to escalate? And if it does, we, we need to be prepared. And so this is why you've seen uh, a lot of people, a lot of headlines, a lot of analysts referring to kind of the, the remilitarization of space. Uh, it's been escalated this past year. You've seen the National Reconnaissance Office, the NRO of the United States now, uh, putting money into getting satellites as quickly as possible uh, to really get a better a better understanding of what's going on out there in, in orbit and being prepared, and the Defense Department is backing this. But this is um, this is a less uh, price sensitive customer, more of a demanding. It has to be quick and it has to be perfect uh, to the specifications that are, that are out there. And so it's kind of a blend of uh, of the launch providers, like we talked about before, of who can get out get up there in a couple of weeks versus six months or a year. But then also who's got the data and who can interpret and do the communications of, of the satellites for a very highly demanding government customer like this. Uh, the reason I bring all of this up is, is Maxar Technologies was one of those companies that, that got acquired, right? It was $6 billion back in, uh, in, I believe it was December, but they got bought out by a private equity company that paid 120% premium to the the equity valuation, right? It was, it was 120% pop or so for a company that was running operations from a satellite that it was using for the government. This feels to me, gentlemen, a lot like the cybersecurity industry that we're using to protect the internet, right? You're not gonna get fired for replacing CrowdStrike. You're not gonna get, you know, there's mission critical things. You have to secure the perimeter of a government, you know, organization that needs to keep out bad guys and, and you know, harmful actors that might breach these systems that are super high in security needs. And then of course, the largest of, of enterprises that are moving workloads to the cloud need the same things for cybersecurity protection. If you've got something that is important 
and is a national concern that's out in outer space, you've got to protect it. And of course, there are a lot of satellite operations that, that are operating in that world. Um, these are hundreds of millions of dollar contracts. Uh, these are companies that are worth several billions of dollars in valuations right now. I personally believe we are not done in seeing consolidation and acquisitions in this space is there's a lot of companies out there that are operating satellites. They launched them up there. They've got the comms, they've got the data, they've got the contracts. Uh, I think we're gonna be seeing a couple more of those consolidated and get bought out in the next couple of years. Steve, this is your field. What do you think about this one? Um, sorry, you were glitching out for me there and I kind of missed that last part. Uh, just, just that I think there's gonna be more consolidation of operators of, of satellites right. that are used for defense purposes. And yes. just, do you have any thoughts about this one? There, um, okay. That uh, consolidation for defense, uh, I think we're, we're already seeing that. And uh, I, I think um, not necessarily via mergers and acquisitions, but via uh, options that go bankrupt on the defense side. And, and it's a very difficult space uh, for a lot of these companies to handle um, in a an environment where capital is difficult to find because defense contracts tend to be lumpy uh in the sense that you know they come in in big chunks with milestones attached uh and can be somewhat inconsistent based on you know the defense budgets and how they're allocated and whether you can actually win these contracts and whether you're a prime contractor or a subcontractor um and you know you have uh companies like Virgin Orbit, for example, which lauded in its pre-SPAC presentations, its ability to serve as sort of an enviable option for governments for defense purposes. Oh, you had a satellite taken down by an enemy? We can launch it you know, on short notice from any airport and, and get it back up there. And well, that's not going to be an option anymore. And uh, that was part of the, the interesting application for companies like Virgin Orbit is that, you know, they were hoping to be able to designate any, you know, any, any, uh, any place with a runway uh, because they're dropping a rocket from an airplane that launches in a normal fashion rather than upright. And uh, it's, it's, I think capital is, is the most crucial thing right now for a lot of these companies because they're unprofitable. And, uh, and unless they can actually win contracts to keep them afloat along the way, um, it's, it's difficult to be able to support their operations in the meantime. And, and uh, I think a lot of that, the onus is gonna fall on established operators like Rocket Lab and SpaceX to be able to, to supply this kind of stuff. But you also have, you know, your sort of perennial prime contractors, your Raytheons and your Northrop Grumman's, and, and uh, you know, they're gonna be participating in, in these contracts, um, you know, and, and the Launch Alliance and, and such. But uh, it's, it's capital is, is king, I think, in this industry because it's a capital intensive um, environment. And, uh, and, you know, they, they will, to a certain extent, uh, the, the governmental organizations that kind of run these defense operations, it's in their best interest to keep these companies afloat. Uh, but in some of the smaller cases, I think it's inevitable that we see more failure uh, over time and consolidation towards the larger operators. So I want to double click on that because I completely agree, Steve. You mentioned American Tower earlier, right? This is the operator that's providing cell service, right? Your AT&T, your Verizon in the U.S., yep. uh, your the large telecom companies internationally, you're using them for the towers where you're putting your routers in place and you're connecting cell phones to them, right? So Verizon and AT&T don't own those towers. They hire American Tower to go build them, to put the infrastructure in place because it's super capital intensive. 
like mm -hmm. you just mentioned, right? And so the same thing is happening in space economy right now. Google has got Google Earth. You know, it had satellites, but then that division, which was called SkySat Labs, they sold it off to Planet Labs because they wanted them to operate it. They wanted them to do all the communications, all the infrastructure stuff, all the permitting, anything you had to for the satellites. It was too expensive to deal with all that. Yeah. And so you start seeing these consolidations of operations for the infrastructure that someone wants to use for something else. Seems like the same thing's happening in space economy. Yeah, and, and not just with launch either, but you know, uh, defense purposes for imagery. We saw consolidation in the last 10 years of, of several of the uh, imagery providers that I used to visit down in you know the Denver and Colorado Springs area, your digital globes. And, uh, and, and you, know, you saw a lot of mergers and acquisitions um, in, in that case, because they realized that operating distinct satellites is, is difficult. Uh, and capital intensive and at scale, it can be very, um, you know, lucrative. Um, but it's also going to be something uh, where you see uh, kind of more software intensive, uh, you know, kind of cybersecurity battles in space. Sounds super futuristic, but that sort of thing was already happening uh, with SpaceX and Starlink and their engineers uh, with Starlink supporting um, Ukraine. Uh, for the whole, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and they're providing Starlink satellites and their engineers were basically um, constantly battling with, you know, denial of service attacks and, and trying to keep ahead of um, really uh, enemy communications and enemy software engineers who were, who were battling to bring down those networks. And uh, that's going to be a big piece uh, is, is companies that have uh, an innovative, um, massive group of software engineers who can step in uh, will be able to actually win uh, in those battles as well. So cybersecurity is going to be uh, a, an even bigger thing uh, and consistent launch again, uh, because you will have satellites brought down. Um, you know, you're going to have you know, intercontinental missiles that you know can step into space. And, and you know, you've seen, um, I believe China actually had a couple um tests bringing down satellites uh, of their own and uh you know they will they'll do this under the guise of of normal maintenance or you know you know we needed to take this down but you know uh, two birds one stone right in a lot of cases and and uh, they're figuring out how to take down certain constellations um if need be and and it's going to be interesting to watch um as well because you need to also do that somewhat safely you know not take down a satellite constellation <laughs> over the continental United States and and put people's lives at risk because of falling space debris that doesn't burn up on, on re-entry. But, um, well, not just that. I mean, you, you said lucrative. So, uh, Luke, let's talk another lucrative opportunity. I told you the puns weren't done, guys. I told you yeah. I was going to keep up coming with more of them. <laughs> but, Luke, you mentioned uh, that in-orbit in servicing was kind of an industry we don't think a lot about, but it's going to be required, right? I, I just visited uh, NASA this, this past month, and you, you can see even just small pieces of the debris, you know, plastics that are floating around that collide with other satellites can look like bullet holes and pierce through metal casings. I mean, stuff like this is underappreciated. It seems like there's a lot of requirement for a sub-industry that just takes care of these, these expensive satellites you're putting in outer space out there. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think we have a good solution to that today. Like there's tens of thousands of satellites and that's going to 10x over you know the coming years. Um, it just takes to two of those to collide because they're not being monitored properly or they're operated by different agencies. Perhaps suddenly you could end up with this cascade of you know hypersonic fragments, um, and it, it's it's a it's a real kind of doomsday scenario for our kind of communications capability. So there's a bunch of companies 
looking at technologies for space debris removal. Um, I think one Astro scale might be a UK company, actually, I'm not too sure. Um, they're actually doing active missions right now to, um, to try and deorbit sort of smaller payloads and satellites and things like that. And they've got um, a device that can sort of, in theory, connect to a satellite that wasn't designed to have something docking with it. So it can kind of throw it out of orbit at a safe time. So it kind of burns up and then drops into the ocean. That's a bunch of companies, including, you know, big companies like Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin looking at exactly the space because as we, the more stuff we put up, well, we need to be able to sort of deorbit it safely just to kind of keep the highways clear as it were. There, there is, you know, I, I think more than we realize kind of going on um, to that end, by the way, you know, that's something that Redwire actually specializes in is in space manufacturing and in space repair uh, and reconstitution of satellite assets. Uh, they actually have lots of interesting solutions uh, to allow people to, to do just that. And, uh, you know, so there are companies like Redwire, which itself was formed, uh, you know, through... Eh, more than half a dozen acquisitions over the last several years uh, of smaller businesses and, and we're seeing consolidate. But yeah, there's a lot of um, sort of little known companies, uh, underappreciated businesses uh, that are allocating a lot of resources toward uh, in-space manufacturing, repair of constellation satellites and reconstitution. So uh, definitely something uh, that they've thought of and are actively working on and uh, you'll see a lot more of. Um, but again, at this stage, um, not super economical um but it's something that's going to need to happen uh and i think uh as as we have more of those applications for thousands upon thousands tens of thousands of new satellites coming into play uh you're going to see a, a a spike in demand for these kinds of services that companies like redwire rdw is that ticker um provides as far as you know in orbit repair and manufacturing capabilities. How do they do it? Is it robotic, Steve? Do they send robots that, you know, have got fuel and then they kind of attach and then do There is, it's, is some of that, but it really depends on the satellite. And, and uh, you know, they've got some really neat videos about uh, like in-space manufacturing and in-space construction where they can actually send up, uh, you know, a, a station or a larger satellite in multiple pieces and actually construct it while in orbit. Um, so yeah, uh, a lot of robotics and involved, and and um, you know some of the stuff that they they sort of keep low key uh, on the defense side, of course. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty slick. Um, the more you kind of dig into it, you can find yourself in that rabbit hole for a solid day if you really want to. I guess that must be a really interesting application for three D printing, right? Because if you've got like a bunch of flexible raw materials and you've right. got the right kind of printing capability. And kind of build anything you need in order. Yeah. And I mean, everything from, you know, 3D printers, you know, from plastic to metal to, uh, to food, you know, and that's something that I was writing about a decade ago where they have, uh, they have 3D printers that are designed for space applications that'll mix oils with powders and, and, uh, selectively apply heat. And it's almost like a space based MRE and, and, uh, you know, something that can actually feed an astronaut with, with nutrients and, um, yeah, there, there's a lot to it, and uh, I, I think I think that's actually one of the things that you know companies like SpaceX, with hundreds of successful launches, are sort of accelerating, uh, is that a lot of this technology existed on a small scale. They said, "Look what we can do," um, but 
who's going to use it right now, except, uh, you know, a, a few government agencies and everything. And, and I think once space travel, uh, demand picks up and, um, you know, missions like this that, that move forward, uh, I think you're going to see, uh, what I say, necessity is the mother uh, of invention, right? And, uh, you're going <laughs> to, when, when the, when the scale of a problem becomes great enough, uh, you never underestimate human ingenuity uh, to provide an economical solution to it. And I think uh, over the next several years, we're going to see uh, lots of really interesting solutions come out of the rise of the space economy. I, I want to talk about a, a couple more fun applications. I say fun because they might be a little bit farther out, sound more like sci-fi, but they are on our radar, more pun intended there. And I wanted to recap some of the conversations uh, and the companies that we mentioned in the discussion previously. Before we do that really quickly, I do want to make sure we get in our sponsored read from our sponsor for this podcast, uh, which is Stocks Current. Stocks Current is your investment companion and guide that's helping individual investors on their investment journey. They are helping new and seasoned investors alike by conducting research, providing analysis, and making recommendations. By joining Stocks Current, you'll get access to their recommendations, watch list, and real money portfolio. You'll also receive their real-time mobile notifications and email alerts of their activities in their real money portfolio. As a listener of our seven investing podcast, you'll also get an exclusive offer of 10% off of their executive membership. Use the unique link to take advantage of this special promotion at www.stockscurrent.com slash signup slash podcast 10. Their membership comes with a 30 day, 100% money back guarantee. Um, Luke, let's go on and talk about a couple more that, that sound kind of fun. Uh, you mentioned lunar exploration and mining and also asteroid mining. Uh, this sounds like something that might be in an Isaac Asimov book, but, but this is something that's got some pretty significant commercial potential, right? It really does. But I mean, let's caveat this. This is basically science fiction today, right? This is decades out before it's at any kind of scale. But if we just think about like, what are the things uh, inhibiting like the growth of humanity and like our advancing as a species, right? We're on the cusp of one of them right now with AI. We're probably not more than 10 or 20 years away from limitless sustainable energy. We can kind of crack fusion. Um, in, in my, for my money, sort of the next one is really limitless resources. So, you know, we are, we, we, we're sort of short of rare earth uh, minerals and metals, which we're using to build batteries and things, or they're, they're hard to get to. Um, in space, you know, we potentially have not just on the moon, which is like rich in water, ice, helium three, we've got asteroids, which are just kind of enormous killer tons of platinum and other, you know, really useful materials. So kind of sidebarring back to, um, red wire and repairing stuff in orbit. Well, if we've got 3d printers, even if it's $130, $130 per kilogram to lift something from the surface of the earth, well, if we've got the ability to actually do kind of asteroid prospecting and mining, we don't need to spend money lifting stuff up from the planet. We'll just, it's out there already. Let's just capture it and start making use of it and um, kind of using advanced manufacturing techniques to build orbital infrastructure, you know, build moon bases, build staging posts on Mars and, you know, go to the next, go to the sort of next stage of the species. I did say this was super sci-fi, so, you know, like in my caveat there, but it's really exciting I stuff, I think. Yeah. 
Steve, what do you think? Any, I mean, I know that it was a Peter Diamandis that was that was really looking at asteroid mining. Saw that you know multi trillion dollar opportunity. Obviously, going to take a long time to figure it out, but the money's there if they if they can figure it to get, get it to work. Right. Uh, it, it's it feels so far off that I haven't given it you know a, a lot of thought as far as the actual economics, but. I mean, I, I think of Armageddon, what's the movie Armageddon, where they're trying to blow up the <laughs> asteroid before it reaches Earth. Uh, I, I think back, it's like, yeah, that that feels that feels pretty sci-fi. But um, you know, what what is what does the problem become when you're when you're bringing back you know materials like platinum and decreasing or increasing the supply and and uh, messing with economics of available platinum stores on Earth? But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that that's something that uh, that. I think it's it's worth watching, but it, that's probably going to take decades before you know we're we're really uh, able to get there. But maybe we'll look back on this podcast and say, "Hey, we were talking about that you know 15 years ago," and uh, you, know, you see something that happens now. But uh, obviously, worth watching. Um, it it but, really uh, is kind of neat, you know. I, I was chatting a couple of months ago with with Michael Walter Range, who's from Callus Partners. It's been a career in the space industry, and he says there are actually job titles, full time employees right now who have got uh, job titles like interplanetary exploration or planetary defense of, you know, what would happen if we meet another species? You know, what is our response going to be? How are you going to conduct, you know, the operations that are, that are out there? I mean, it's, 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 it's actually happening. It's, it's things that, you know, it does sound sci-fi, but there are dollars being spent on figuring these things out. And certainly commercial opportunities that uh, are in markets that begin with the letter T or trillion, I've got significant implications. Before we do a recap, any final thoughts? Anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to get in here before we wrap up the podcast? Uh, Luke, I'll go with you first. And it is just such a fantastic area, and it's incredible to be alive at this time. I've been a science fiction fan for my whole life, really. And now to see some of the stuff coming off the page and actually uh, you know, taking place. I'm, it, it's in my um, bucket list to come and see a SpaceX launch and landing. So I might come visit you in Texas sometime in the next year or so, Simon. It sounds like I can pick my dates now because they're, they're landing stuff almost multiple times a week. Late, late April, Brownsville for the Starship. Come on over, Luke. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll find a place and we'll watch it take off. It sounds fun. Steve, what do you think? Any final thoughts on uh, space economy? I, I, I just think it's worth reiterating, um, you know, that even though uh, we're, we're very early stage, you know, there will be, maybe maybe because we're very early stage, there will be more failures there will be lots of consolidation. There's going to be mergers and acquisitions, especially as long as capital remains restrictive, the ability to raise capital. Uh, but there will also be extraordinary successes. And I think you know, SpaceX is going to be one of those. My goodness, what would happen if uh, Elon decides to take that one public? Uh, it, it would be wild. Um, but I, I think... Um, you know, I, I think the the strong will survive, and uh, and you know, people who have the wherewithal to step in at the right time um, will make a lot of money in the process, and uh, we'll obviously be continuing to watch opportunities for um, retail investors to kind of take advantage of this in the meantime. But um, yeah, it's going to be a fun fun one to watch over the next five, ten, fifteen years. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one more fun question before uh, before we wrap this up is: Let's say that uh, that January first, twenty twenty four, SpaceX is going to uh, spin off into. I'm sorry, not not spin off. All of SpaceX will go public at a two hundred billion dollar valuation. Right, so it's got to be a premium from where we are right now, Luke. Are you buying shares at the IPO at two hundred billion of space of a start? Of, excuse me, SpaceX. So um, I had a conversation with my buddy Albert a couple of years ago, and it was. Uh, 
if you were forced to go all in your entire portfolio on one company, which would it be? And my answer was SpaceX. It's the only thing out there where I think uh, I'm happy to stick the whole lot on the line. Let's see what happens. That'd be one heck of an IPO. Steve, are you buying shares at 200 billion? <laughs> can I get in at IPO pricing or do I have to buy after the first day pop? Because that's no, what's going to happen. IPO. You can buy it at IPO price. <laughs> heck yeah. Then uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be averaging in, but uh, I, I think it, it would be a, a pretty wild wild pop to, to see what happens. And, and uh, you know, I, I think the valuation uh, is working on justifying itself. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think people should be surprised if we see a multi-hundred billion dollar um, valuation uh, if and when it, it actually comes public because it's raising money at those levels and it's only continuing to scale. So uh, what a what a crazy business. Absolutely. Well, it's certainly a crazy industry, too. It's one, like we mentioned, it's got a lot of risks, but that shouldn't also disguise that it's got huge opportunities, as we mentioned on this podcast today. I thank you, Luke Hallard. Thank you, Steve Simonton, our seven investing lead advisors, where every month we are recommending stock, publicly traded stock opportunities, several of which and several of our actual recommendations are also in the space economy. Uh, recapping a couple of the companies we mentioned here on today's podcast, we did mention Rocket Lab. We mentioned Amazon, we mentioned Virgin Galactic, we mentioned Redwire, and we mentioned Astroscale. These are all publicly traded opportunities. I believe Astroscale is a UK-based publicly traded loop. Correct me if I'm wrong on that one. Sure. Uh, Astra uh, Space is uh, publicly traded, but yeah, they're they're struggling to maintain their NASDAQ listing at this point too. And Virgin Orbit also uh, was another mention there, but I uh, do not recommend buying that, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, perfect. want to throw out a couple of publicly traded ideas out there for investors. Of course, do your own diligence, but we do a lot of great research here at 7investing. And again, that's 7investing.com slash subscribe. If you'd like to check our service out, if you sign up today, uh, we're doing a limited promotion right now that you'll get the first month of starter membership for absolutely free. So we encourage you to check that out. My name is Simon Erickson. We really appreciate your time here today. Thanks for tuning into our podcast and live stream on the space economy with myself, Luke, and Steve. We can uh, look forward to seeing you on future podcasts, and we hope that you have a wonderful day. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing.